and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Riddy. Before we get started on our movie this week, The Life Aquatic, um, I did want to bring up some uh, news about past movies. Uh, the first one is The Exorcist. Uh, one of my other favorite podcasts, don't go listen to it, keep listening to this one, um, The Complete Guide to Everything, talked about The Exorcist. They covered The Exorcist in their uh, movies uh, for Halloween, haunted movie productions. And they said the phrase that we were unwilling or unable to say from The Exorcist. Uh, wait, so what, kudos what, to them. What, wait, what phrase was that? Oh, I think you know. Your mother. I... Oh, okay. We're... we're... <laughs> We're prudes. What can you? What can you say? Yeah, we're real prudes. And then, uh, as you do over the weekend when you're at an event that you really don't care to be at, uh, as I sort of was, I was reading TV tropes and learned that black exploitation movies in the '70s, you know, had their heyday. And then The Exorcist was one of the movies that killed the genre. Oh no, I did not know this. I didn't either. But they're like black people went to go see The Exorcist, and they would go to white like neighborhoods and go to the movie theaters there. And that made studio execs, execs realize that, hey, we can just make movies instead of black exploitation movies. And so, so you're telling me The Exorcist killed Blackenstein and Blackula in one fell swoop? Yes, that's true. Damn it. It's it's a little late for Halloween, uh, both in terms of uh, Halloween black exploitation movies and those movies getting killed. But TV tropes mentioned that The Exorcist was one of the movies that did it, Star Wars and Jaws, but The Exorcist was the first one I saw. Well, since uh, you mentioned black exploitation films, we should probably say R.I.P. Richard Roundtree, the original oh, Shaft, yeah, I saw passed that away yesterday. So the world lost one of the baddest motherfuckers around. So that's true. rest in peace, my guy. Rest in power, brother. It's November, uh, and both of our birthdays are this month, so we're picking our favorite movies to watch. And I chose a movie close uh, to my heart, 2018's Venom, starring Tom Hardy. Oh, shush. No, don't, don't do this to me. <laughs> don't even bring that energy into the podcast. Um, but there was two, like, Spider-Man things I wanted to, like, ask you. One, I saw a headline today that said, Tom Holland's Spider-Man, in uh, caps, rumored to battle Tom Hardy's Venom on screen, quote, sooner than you think. And given that we watched Venom uh, and that we've also seen the spider Man movies, Spider Man movies, Spider Men's attorneys I don't even general. Know. I I don't even know Spider's Men. Then I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion of what you thought. Like you know, Venom and like Sony Venom plus MCU Spider Man would be like. I never thought the day would arrive where I would be sick of Spider Man movies, but I think <laughs> I've I think I've reached that point in my life. I mean, I guess maybe it happened during the Andrew Garfield era, but. If Sony's going to get involved, I don't really want them to do anything. Unless they were to somehow adapt the storylines from the video game. Because uh -huh. I, I was wondering if we were going to touch on it all this week. Because I know I bought Spider-Man 2 for PlayStation last weekend. And I played... That was my next maybe... question to you. Is, is Have you been playing Spider-Man 2? I, I played about 10 hours over the mm -hmm. weekend i don't even know if it was that long actually now i think about it but i i, get, I got probably through the first act of the game trying to mm -hmm. avoid any spoilers to anybody's listening i will say there was an action sequence very early on in the game that was more riveting and compelling than anything the mcu has done in i don't even remember when uh, so 
even loki have you been watching loki i'm watching loki i loved tom hiddleston i think he does justice for tall skinny men named tom (laughs) i like i love the aesthetic of it i like the tva retro 1950s look i like the episode so far where they go back in time and different timelines but i could not tell you what the plot of this season is so far it's so convoluted and confusing and i've never been one of those people that's been unable to comprehend a, a comic book storyline no matter how convoluted it is but this Ridiculous. one it's just kind of the point where it's like i think i'm over it i i think i've yeah. just finally reached my maximum level for marvel stuff yeah i played it i was out of town over the weekend and then came back and played it a little bit and i like it it's good and i was thinking of like now that there's two spider men in the game like how do we Spiders, men, men, spiders, not yet a spider boy. Wait, no longer a spider boy, not yet a spider man. That will be the Peter Parker biography that will come out after the success of the new Britney Spears autobiography (laughs) that came out this week. I was very tempted to buy it or download it or whatever. Use your local library. They're great. Yeah, that's true. Reading is fundamental. So let me move on to the actual subject of our podcast today. Welcome to the Bill Murray cast, all about Bill Murray all the time. Actually, we're still Cheer Up Buddy, but we are doing another Bill Murray movie. This time it's The Life Aquatic, Wes Anderson's 2004 film. So it's been a little while. In the movie, Steve Zissou, Bill Murray is a once famous Jacques Stowe type ocean explorer, now well past his prime. On his latest adventure, one of his crew is eaten by a mysterious jaguar shark. Zissou and his crew make it their mission to find and kill the shark. Along the way, Zisu meets his possible son, Ned Plimpton, Owen Wilson, speaking of Loki, as he navigates conflicts with his Bond company, his wife, Eleanor, Angelica Houston, his rival, Alistair Hennessy, Jeff Goldblum, Uncooperative Ocean Life, and Pirates. Tom, what did you think of the movie? I saw this movie when it came out back in 2004, and I loved it. I was still all about Wes Anderson back then. Rewatching it yesterday, I still really like it. Like, it's the older I get, I'm finding more and more problematic elements about Wes Anderson's story, whether it being mm-hmm. like social aspects of it or the fact that, in essence, every Wes Anderson movie is a story about a weird, fucked up father son dynamic. So, mm-hmm. I think that's. Maybe not all of them, but grand majority of them. So I think that starts to get old after a while. But I still love the way this movie looks. I still mm-hmm. love Kate Blanchett. Like I, I, when she comes onto the screen in this film, I swoon. I, <laughs> Willem Dafoe. You're Defoe's not doing anything great. to uh, to kill our uh, pervert uh, reputation. You know, I, I was choosing my words carefully. So I was, horn dog uh, reputation. Yeah, that's swoon is less horny than being like, so trying to class it up a bit, you know, and okay, I, I in looking at her, I was like, oh, this is I wonder if this is where my attraction, the pale blondes comes from, which anyone <laughs> who knows my current relationship status would understand what that means. But no, I was I was still pretty happy with it. I don't want to jump too far ahead, so I'll throw it back to you. You know, how did you like it? And, you know, I sent it to you ahead of time yesterday. You need to explain to everyone why this was your birthday movie choice. Well, I kind of don't know. And I actually started my notes off with complaints about Wes Anderson, which if you had told me that like 15 years ago, like I wouldn't have believed you. Oh, same. Um, yeah. Uh, and and I do think like, again, I, I've been listening to a lot of The Complete Guide to Everything because I just have a lot of time during work. And 
they use a phrase like Wes Anderson being like too cute by half, which is kind of true, I think. And I kind of listed the complaints I had about him. Like, I'm glad you did this because one of the questions I had was whether we wanted to spend time going through and figuring out all the traits of a Wes Anderson film, which I think is probably, I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to overlap with this list right now. Yeah. And so like, I think there's a lot of things he does, which maybe this was the first time or close to the first time in Life Aquatic, but he kept doing like over and over. And so uh, Steve Zissou does like an introduction to the, his ship, the Belafonte. And he's like, here's my ship. And I'm going to talk more about that uh, later. But it does seem like that sort of looking at a model or like a, a stop motion version of like the, the ship. The cross section of the boat. Right. The cross section of the boat. Uh, the cross section of the Grand Budapest Hotel in that movie, um, which is also on our list of sad man movies. Um, he keeps doing that like sort of thing. I think I can't remember because I only saw the French Dispatch once, but I think he might have done that with the French Dispatch building. Like. I feel like it keeps happening over and over again. Yeah, he um, definitely plays yeah. the same notes over and over. And thinking about it just now, I, f- I think one reason Wes Anderson is kind of tired, grown tired for me, is that mm-hmm. it sort of feels like you're eating the same piece of candy over and over and yeah. over. And at first it's great, and it's like, but it's kind of law diminishing returns where I think, I think the past two movies, I... I did not get through French Dispatch. I think I gave up after mm-hmm. maybe 20 minutes. And then Asteroid City, I got all the way through, but it was a reluctant viewing. I, it was one of the things I was like, well, yeah. I've made it this far. I'm just going to sit through the rest and hope for the best. And the best yeah. never really comes. That's that's sad to hear. Like, I was going to go see Asteroid City in the theaters. And then I just got so, so hyped up after Spider-Verse 2 that I didn't see it. And then... I was going to see it when it came on Peacock and I didn't watch it then. And now it's like basically on everything. And I still have, like, I'm going to watch it, but I haven't yet. I just don't feel that like need to watch it. A lot of like use of like foreign language and foreign people, something else I'm going to come back to stop motion <laughs> animals, which he does like a lot culminating in sort of uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. And, you know, there's this fairy tale aspect to it, uh, but he doesn't go much harder than this, except for those two movies where it's completely stop motion mm-hmm. um he's got that you know you mentioned that uh loki sort of retro contemporary look and aesthetic he's got that he's my example when i taught design of like using you know sort of font faces for specific effects and his constant use of futura uh sound design colors uh that damn i think it's a harpsichord in all of the music um <laughs> every one of these movies well that's how you know you're an enchanted land you hear that you're like, oh i'm i'm not in the real world anymore i'm in a wes anderson world now yeah this isn't japan this is the isle of dogs and this is in india this is wes anderson india which you know is one of my other complaints it doesn't come up quite as much in this movie but using like real people's culture as like window dressing so i think both in in darjeeling limited which we've talked about and uh isle of dogs he does that and it's Japan, but it's fairy tale Japan or fantasy Japan. So, and I, I have for me, like it hits a lot differently in 2004 than it does now, where he's kind of come back to that same well sort of over and over again. Um, yeah, he's definitely a, a white sad man storyteller. And <laughs> I did think, I did notice it. I watched this on my own yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. And when I was walking the dog with my partner, she asked about it and one of her comments was, are there any women in the movie? And it took me a second. I was like, oh yeah, there are. 
And then I thought about it. It's like, well, the only <laughs> one of them is naked for two thirds of them. I was going to say the only the only female crew member on Steve Stizu's ship is topless, and mm-hmm. then then there's Kate Blanchett, who's the reporter, who he constantly calls uh, homophobic slurs. Yeah. And then there's Angelica Houston, who has like a, a bit of respect from him, but you know, it's it's his wife that he's always cheating on. So it's kind of like, well, yeah. not the most forward thinking when it comes to female characters. No. And I think, I mean, you sort of mentioned it and it reminds me of, I mean, at this point, like don't, I would have made this comparison again, like 15 years ago, and I'm a little more hesitant to make it now, but Akira Kurosawa, like all of his movies are basically about men. Seven Samurai has like one major like female character, but they're all like really like men's movies. And if I could like level a complaint against his movies, it's that he doesn't really deal with women. And I would say the same, pretty same, or it's pretty similar for Wes Anderson. And this is like no exception. And you mentioned sort of a lot of the movies kind of deal with the father-son relationship, which is true. But I did want to like, it's not the same thing, but like one of the reasons I did pick this movie is that, you know, I'm super interested in marine biology, wish I had taken it in college, ended up taking like some online courses during the pandemic on it. Um, and we had like a pretty good like read bio uh, program in undergrad. And I'm, I'm sad I didn't take advantage of that, but we, we it's always did? meant a lot to me. Our undergrad program had like a good biology program? A marine bio, yeah, like you would have to do it in the summer and you like went on site for like four weeks of like class, oh. like we got like day after day. I, I, had no I that the, the fact that this, I know this like 20 years later, obviously it made an impression even if I didn't uh, take advantage of it. I missed out on so much by majoring in creative writing. <laughs> <laughs> I missed, missed out so much like trying to like get into med school and then law school. Oh, I, yeah, I knew what I was signing up for. I knew I was destined for <laughs> failure, but what can you do? But like, you've got this like real marine life in the movie and you've got this fake stop motion marine life. And when I first saw the movie, like I was like, I want to see more of that real marine life and less of this like really jerky, cartoony stop motion marine life. But that's something I really sort of flipped on. Like there's a bunch of like, you know, even my rewatch yesterday or the day before, yesterday like the fluorescent snapper the crayon pony fish jaguar shark itself i think it does create this kind of fantasy realm that gets like kind of pushed to the extreme in you know mr fox and isle of dogs and it's hard for me to watch like i think there's one or two scenes where the dolphins are real and then um there's one scene where the 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 orca is real and just reading what i've read about keeping like those kinds of like highly intelligent mammals and like really small aquariums makes me feel sad so like going back and watching it almost 20 years later it 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 left a little bit of like a bad taste in my mouth those were things that i didn't like and i kind of wish like all of the sea life had been that stop motion style which i appreciate a lot more now that said you kind of asked me like why did i pick this movie and it's at the end of my notes and that marine bio sort of thing is part of it i wonder how many like marine biologists our age were like created by this film i would suspect several oh yeah Um, i'd have to think it had some influence yeah like you know i feel like certain professions like have movies you know we know like a handful of them from you know law school uh my cousin Vinny. i would say legally blonde probably had a bigger influence on people in the legal profession in our age than any other movie that's true legally blonde that's a good one so I feel like this is one of the, the ones for a marine biologist. 
But I think what really attracts me to this or attracted me to this movie before I rewatched it was this idea of like middle-aged men past their prime. Mm -hmm. The other movie I was thinking about for this month, if we do four movies, is Porco Rosso, which has a very similar theme. I think it probably does it a little bit better. But we can talk about that if we actually do it. But well, I, I will say, don't worry about overlap because I briefly listened to the first few minutes of the director's commentary today. Mm -hmm. And Wes Anderson said that eight and a half was a big influence on this movie. And that was going to be my birthday pick. So we're <laughs> going to have a lot of uh, middle aged men stories, a lot of thematic overlap, it seems. So don't worry about if we kind of tread the same ground. Because I'm well, going... I don't know if I want to say the exact number. It's 20 for those of you listening, but we're we're hitting milestone birthdays and we're getting close to like Zisu is 52 in this movie, and that's not that far off. Uh no. all things considered. It's you know, which was super surprising to me. I didn't remember them saying his age. But it's like men past their prime coming to grips with not being the shit anymore. I don't know if that's thematically related, and, but he, he says like a few times in the movie, like, what happened to me? Uh, am I ever going to be good again? Which I think is like that, the almost like the full circle of that question that uh, Scarlett Johansson asks him, asks him or Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. Uh, what am I going to be? Yeah, I, I had that line in my notes as well. I thought that was one of the more poignant questions in the film. Yeah. And then you know, he also says, like, I wonder if it remembers me, I jumping to the end of the movie and talking about the the jaguar shark, and it does like raise the question for me: like, are any of us going to be remembered? Like, we all are. You know, we talked about our own mortality as a uh, early discussion in, in in the podcast that light topic, and you know, like we all know that we're going to die, and like it's like you do think about like, am I going to live on or am I going to be forgotten? And it is something that. Like, there's part of me that's like, I'm going to be dead. What do I care? Versus like, I would like to be remembered. It'd be very nice to like, you know, a century after my death, people are still like talking about me or like reading my book or watching my movie or whatever the, the you know, that, that, that way of reaching whatever immortality is. It's funny you mention that because you and I have had this kind of conversation a few times about whether or not we should have kids and whether the window is even open for that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'd mostly resign myself to thinking, eh, I'm probably not going to have kids. It just never worked out that way. Then I saw Coco about a month ago and that gave me a huge existential crisis because the whole concept of that movie is the city of the dead that inspired uh, that, uh, the movie is inspired by uh, the Dia de los Muertos stuff. The dead are only allowed to live in the afterworld if somebody remembers them. And if, some, mm -hmm. if no one remembers them, they just disintegrate into dust. And after I watched that movie, I was like, oh my God, I need to have a kid. <laughs> it's like, and that's not a healthy mindset to have that, oh, I need a, a children's Disney movies making me want to, have progeny now so it's been a weird couple weeks with that <laughs> movie still stuck in my brain well i'm caught between like that impulse and like kind of whether it's like genetically or whatever like i really got into 23 and me for a little bit there and was like you know there's been like an unbroken line of people leading to me am i going to be the one that like breaks that chain and like you know ends that that line 
I had that exact like, thought in the shower last night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're we're on the same thing. Versus like the earth is gonna be an uninhabitable like fireball in like 15 years. Like, do I really want to set another person up for that? So Yeah, it it's I'm lucky in that I have a sister who has a couple sons. So like mm-hmm. I guess technically the family lineage could theoretically go on through them. And I, I remember a couple of years ago, I talked about my mom who has never pressured me into having grandkids, you know, mm-hmm. having kids so she could have grandkids from me. And we talked about, it, she's like, oh, I don't blame you at all. She's like, the world's falling apart. If you want to have it fine, but if you don't, I don't blame you at all. So that was nice to have a parent who was kind of cognizant of the state of affairs. So, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's lingered on my mind a lot. So it's, I didn't think about it too much with this movie because it's a little i'm maybe sidetracking a little bit because when i started watching it yesterday in my notes i wrote that he's steve zizu's a sad man because his best he watches best friend get killed by a shark but then as Mm -hmm. you've already mentioned it then kind of progresses into more of an existential crisis about whether anything we do is worthwhile or will will we be remembered or Mm -hmm. are we kind of all alone on our through it all because that's my favorite part of the movie is the end. And it's what makes it for me. Like I enjoy mm-hmm. it throughout, but they, the final sequence where they're in the, the sub and he looks at the shark that killed his friend and asks, mm-hmm. I wonder if it remembers me and starts tearing up and kind of like emotionally breaking down. And the entire crew that's in there with them, all the cast of characters, they all kind of come close and reach out to him and like, put their hand on his shoulder or pulled his hand. And I, I wrote a note to myself that said, I would like to have that sensation once in my life where I just feel like all my loved ones are together and just let me know that they care about me and I'm not alone. And I thought about it. I think the only situation where everyone I know and love would be together in one room will be when I die. So I wouldn't be able to kind of get the weird sense of, satisfaction from it so it does bring i don't know i don't know what that's down a little bit oh well my level of joy has been at near zero for a very long time so that's that's no concern no well you know i just meant like it's nice if everyone is there and kind of you know literally sort of supporting you uh as they did in the movie for steve uh for steve which is a very weird thought for me to have because i have very loving and encouraging friends and family so it's not like people are the people in my life are dicks. Everyone's like, Oh yeah, you're a good writer. You could do this. Oh, you have a podcast. I'll, I'll listen. I like it. So it's not like I, I have surrounded myself with very good people, but for some reason I've always kind of had this feeling of being alone. So maybe I should go back to therapy and tap into that a little bit. Well, uh, we here at cheer up buddy do support therapy. I don't know. It feels like the two extremes are like where we're at, where, um, I'll speak for you rather than for myself, but you have talent. I I've said that before. And, you know, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm support. I, I looked on my Kindle like uh, maybe a month or two ago and saw like one of your self-published books uh, from like maybe college, maybe a little bit after. And I was like, I like this book uh, it a lot. Been, it would have been after. Yeah. You know, I'm just like supremely like impressed with your talent, but I think we both have the sense of humility. I don't know if I have the talent to like justify humility. Maybe it's just the good sense to know that I don't have that talent. But the other side of the spectrum is someone who's never been told no in their life, like Elon Musk, 
who mm-hmm. uh, offered a million dollars to Wikipedia this week to name themselves Dickipedia for a year. I mean, I know which side of the spectrum feels morally better, but I do wonder if there's like a center or middle ground between being like not recognizing your own talent versus like recognize or thinking that you're talented in everything, I guess is the, the contrast. Yeah. I'm going to rein in my thoughts on this because otherwise I'm going to be blowing my load early. Cause most of this is going to be what I'm going to talk about when we watch eight and a half. So I don't okay. want to hijack your episode because we're going into, we're going into territory that we're going to re-explore like Steve Zizou in the depths of the ocean. Oh, and we'll hear about it again in Porco Rosso if we do that one too. But since you brought up the the Jaguar shark scene, uh, I do have a note here that says like nothing about that scene should work. This like a little bit ridiculous looking Jaguar shark stop motion creature, the live action shots of Zisu and the rest of the crew, the Siguras music. Chef's kiss right there. Yeah, chef's kiss. But like these pieces together, like don't feel like on the outside that they should work together. but yeah, like that makes me still feel something. And I remember the last time I watched this, uh, and it's not fair because I may have watched it on a plane, maybe back from Japan, but like I get very emotional on a plane for like eight hours uh, at that altitude. And I think I cried during that scene. And I almost cried this time too. And it really does make the movie. And like that whole like back half of the movie from the pirate attack, uh, it starts getting very emotional for me. And yeah, like I, I think where I was a little bit like soured on the movie at the beginning because A, you know, all of these things that Wes Anderson does in all of his movies and B, Steve Zissou is a very hard character to like, especially at the beginning of the movie. You know, I was like, do I just not like this movie anymore? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I was sort yeah. of thinking I would have a lesser opinion of because I rewatched Royal Tenenbaums earlier in the year, which I used mm-hmm. to consider my favorite Wes Anderson movie and Same. watching it now. It's like, Ugh, I don't know. I, it just seems a little too weird now. Like I, it, the romantic element of, of two siblings being in love, even if they're adopted and have different parents, it's when you're in your teens, you're like, Oh, this is such a romantic story. And you're, when you're older, it's like, well, they still grew up together. This is kind of creepy. Like it's definitely yeah. one of those things where age, gives a new perspective on it and i was expecting something like that with this but i didn't really have that i mean i think there's more sensibilities like i talked about earlier with like the only female crew member being topless most of the time and weird stuff like that and the really random homophobic slurs that are kind of strewn throughout the movie which is like yeah i, I mean that de- i mean that didn't play over well at the time but even even more so now yeah and kind of the implication that jeff goldblum was not a good husband because he's apparently by or it's like well this is weird like it's gay i I mean it was weird when it yeah so but aside from aside from that which luckily isn't a huge part of the movie but otherwise i it did hold up pretty well and and like you i I didn't cry at the at the sub scene but i get this like cold empty feeling inside me where it's just like my soul leaves my body or something but that that still happens every time i watch that so for whatever reason it still has a huge emotional impact no matter how many times i've seen it you bring up the children thing and it's like i would like to have a child that does like remember me in a good way and that's like one of the reasons like this movie means a lot and the other is is this father-son relationship and i know you heard it because you also want you listen to the commentary listen to part of it for this movie that they wes anderson and was it noah bombeck 
Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second, but the most pretentious shit, like this is the most Wes Anderson shit I could have ever thought of. <laughs> they recorded the commentary for this movie at the restaurant they wrote the movie at. And so you hear like other people's conversations, you hear like, I guess, dinnerware, like I think it's lunchtime, but like yeah, you the, hear the, like- the clanking of utensils. I was only able to make it through 10 minutes of the commentary because it starts off, you can hear somebody sweeping in the background. And that's one of my most grating noises, like a dry broom on dry ground. That's like when people talk about nails on a chalkboard, that's the equivalent for me. So had to kind of like grit my teeth and listen and then they're just talking did you notice they had to censor every time they said Cousteau yeah was it just Cousteau or was it other people too I wasn't clear on that I I wasn't sure but I meant to look up to see if there's a lawsuit if the Cousteau estate sued over this movie I was one there had to have been some reason why they were censoring that I have the Criterion Blu-ray for Life Aquatic but I watched it on like the Apple TV like streaming and that didn't come with the the commentary so i looked up the commentary and found like an audio track for it was listening to it during work and they censored the names and i was like is this just my version or is this like on the actual commentary but yeah like yeah i have my i have a dvd of it that's nearly 20 years old so it must have happened at the time but I was going to say like this, this, I mean, and you mentioned it, the thorough line of, of longing for a father figure, uh, it's in Rushmore, it's in Royal Tenenbaums, it's in this movie, it's in Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'd have to think about like, maybe it's in Budapest Hotel, like I think it's maybe a little bit lighter there, but that also really spoke to me. And I'm not going to get too deep into this, but the longing for father figure, for a father, for parental figures, like that is like really touching to me and i mean that in sort of a very neutral sense of like it's very moving for me both in like a positive and a negative way and first scene that really sort of takes my breath away in the way that you mentioned for the jaguar shark scene is that scene where zisu like accepts like meets and sort of accepts ned the first time we kind of find out it's not a real acceptance and he hasn't really changed his stance on fatherhood or who this kid might be but the beginning of life on mars starts playing and it's like all these pieces sort of come together and like it looks like they were like it looks like david bowie wrote that song for this scene and we know he didn't because you know the song is like 20 years older than the movie but or 30 years older than the movie. But that scene is that first time where it's like, oh, like, it's not just stuff that's aged poorly. It's not just twee. Although I guess you could argue David Bowie is probably pretty twee at this point. You know, you don't star with the Muppets and control a labyrinth without being <laughs> somewhat twee. And so like, that was one of the first sort of like emotionally very uh, resonant scenes for me. And we got a long stretch after that where it feels like a little less resonant. And then I think as soon as the pirates sort of come on, we start moving towards that resonance again. And we start seeing that change in Zisu as a character where he goes from jerk ass to jerk ass with a heart of gold or, you know, some approximation of that. Well, I kind of took it, the pirate scene where he breaks out of his bondages and goes on a rampage and kind of saves the boat. It felt like a, it was a breaking point for the character where I felt like they were sort of in a malaise. And then at that point, it was just like, ah, who gives a shit anymore? It's like, I'm going to do this because yeah. if I die, I don't care, which is not really a healthy approach, especially when you had an entire crew of employees' lives on the line when the pirates with guns and machetes everywhere and everyone's tied up with 
with uh, potato sacks over their head. Yeah, but it definitely was well, it's kind of the other extreme of being like not being a dad. Like the the one extreme is like not giving a shit and like knowing that Ned existed and not contacting him or his mother. The other is like I'm gonna do everything and I don't care what the repercussions are, the the consequences are, because I don't care about. I still don't care about the person I'm parenting or the people I'm parenting. I care about, I guess, my own sort of feelings in this situation. Or maybe it's not this. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe it's a, the same, uh, the different side of the same coin, or or however that phrase goes. Well, that reminds me of a line that I wrote down where Bill Murray said, "I hate fathers and never wanted to be yeah. one," which obviously indicates some traumatic backstory there. But yeah, it's definitely. Uh, I think after that, where he is, maybe like a first. Well, I, no, it really isn't the first sense of mortality because he watched his friend die unless somehow mm -hmm. it's like the first sense of mortality for himself. But even then, I don't know. I don't I don't really agree that that he was ignorant or not cognizant of it prior to that. So I don't know. Maybe it was just I, like the I, first time he got his mojo back. Maybe. I, I do feel like he is in this like middle-aged ennui. And I don't know like necessarily what the the factors are in, in that. But I do think like, well, I say that, but I also think like Zisu was a child, especially at the beginning of the movie. And I have like a paragraph uh, about like all the things that make me think of him as a child. And there's his kind of, he doesn't know like any of the science stuff, even though he's like this Jacques Cousteau wannabe sort of figure, sort of a, a pastiche of him or both a deconstruction and a reconstruction of Cousteau. But even like I have the phrase Arrested Development sort of written down. And then underneath that, like, that like, let me tell you about my boat. And I could see like an 11 year old or a 12 year old saying like, here's my bike. I put in like spokes. Uh, I've got a baseball card in there so that it makes that cool sound. The music and what the What year are itself. you from? <laughs> Don't ask me that. <laughs> it's not like I said, like you put like a, you, you roll a hoop around with a stick or something. Like people still put. I can't believe he put a Roger Maris rookie card in your bike spokes. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't, I wasn't saying like I did it at 15, but like at 10, like you were just like, I made a cool sound. It's like, great. The model and the music in that scene are really childlike. He sort of ends that scene by saying like, this is what the engines look like or something like that. And he's like, we can't afford to fix them this year. It's like a kid, like I said, like, it's like a kid telling you about his bike. When Eleanor leaves him, he says, even if it's true, don't say that, which is like the most sort of like angsty teenage boy thing to say, I think, ever. Um, oh, no. I, there's a more angsty line in this film. It's angsty, like teenage boy thing? Well, I guess technically it's, you can't be a teenage boy and say this because of the line. But what I'm thinking of <laughs> is the line, I'm, I'm sorry, I know I haven't been at my best this past decade, which I guess a teen could say if they realize that they'd been depressed since they were like four, maybe. Uh, or six, but I think it's more of an older man comment. But I think that's the mo most angsty line in the film, where it's kind of recognizing, oh, yeah, yeah, I've no, been absolutely. In a... And I, you know, I, I, I would say I think I've said something very similar to my therapist. Like, like how long have you oh, felt sure. this way? And I'm like, well, you know, my entire adult life, like I can think back to childhood, yeah. and I didn't feel this way. But like every time I've reasoned as an adult, I, I felt this way. But and then like towards the end, it's like you know they're talking about the unborn child that. You know what's her face is going to have forgot her name already kate blanchett uh, jane. She's, she's jane yes yeah um the marcel like, bruce reading journalist 
which is another reason why I swooned. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> keeping your pants. But uh, she says in 12 years, uh, he, talking about her unborn son, will be 11 and a half. And Zisu replies, that was my favorite age. And I really think there's like a, you know, he is like an 11-year-old child through much of this movie. Do you have a and favorite someone age? Said, He's an ins- Do I have a favorite age? No. I, I look back and they were all kind of shit. I would say child like sometime in like childhood, but like then like you didn't get to like drive or anything, and I was like, well, you can't live like that anymore. I'd have to say probably thirty two or thirty three. I think that was probably the okay. I was like at the the peak of my beauty. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. I do feel like there was like a very short time in my late twenties into my like early thirties, maybe where I was like you know what, like I have a little bit of self-confidence, which I did not have like at any point up to this point. Uh, and now just I'm like, I'm an old man who uh, has ruined his own life. So there was a short period <laughs> of time where like, I have enough confidence to like make it in the world or like, at least I think, I get I think it's a little it. harsh. You're doing pretty well at the moment from what, from what I know. Eh, I don't know about I mean, that, but like. Good things are happening at least. Well, thank you. I know this is from the commentary. Like they like specifically said that Zisu is inspired by a fantasy version of himself. And then Anderson and, and Bombak all, like also mentioned that our cinematic idols were our sur- surrogate fathers. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, we know that Anderson has like daddy issues. Oh, but, yeah, 100%. Like, I, find that, <laughs> I find that very resonant, at least in, in this movie. Yeah, I mean, that's, I can do an entire side podcast about dad issues. I, I you know, I don't want to, yeah, I'm not even going to go into it at all right now. It will, I'm, I know inevitably it will come up and I'm pretty sure I know which movie we will cover where it will. So I'll leave the mystery for Venom. people to figure it out. Mm-hmm. My father was, a, <laughs> my father was a symbiote. You kind of mentioned these like tropes that Anderson used as we were talking at the beginning but I have a note about like almost all of the major actors in this movie are playing like very tropey versions of like their normal roles. Like Bill Murray is Bill Murraying it the hell up in this movie. Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblooming it up in this movie. Owen Wilson to me is like really Owen Wilsoning it up in this movie. But in the commentary, Bombak and Anderson are like, he's really playing against type this time. And I think my impression of Wilson is like, post this post this movie but i no, i disagree with you on that i felt like it okay. was a pretty pretty reserved performance by owen wilson where instead of the wow type of persona <laughs> that he's kind of created over the past couple of decades i felt like it was pretty reserved he, he plays this like kind of quiet gentlemanly kentucky man and he's you know he doesn't have any zany comments he's not kind of we come on we gotta break into the wedding so we can sleep with random women like it doesn't have any kind of weird energy like that i thought it was uh what the other guy they both were all about the wedding crashing at the beginning it's just that owen wilson developed the conscience later on because he fell in love with rachel mcadams Mm -hmm. well this is now a wedding crasher podcast We just talk about the Wedding Crashers every single time and media influenced by the Wedding Crashers. So that episode of The Office. No, like I feel like I'm remembering him from that Google intern movie where he played more of the straight man than, uh, God, that conservative blowhard whose name I've completely forgotten. Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Yeah, that fucker. Um, Is he conservative? I didn't know that. I I think he is. Mm. I saw him once at a museum in Chicago. He's very tall. And that's coming from a six foot four man. 
you should have thrown thrown a piece of pizza at him. Oh God, no, he could and kick then, my ass. <laughs> uh, Vince, well, yeah, Vince Vaughn. And then I'm also thinking of, and it's on my mind because it's on, but like Loki and Mobius, like he he plays a pretty reserved kind of role in that one too. Maybe I just don't know the oeuvre of Owen Wilson that well, but I do think Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Angelica Houston. Uh, they're playing like very tropey versions or very like, I don't know how much is acting and how much is like, yeah, I did this in Jurassic Park or I did this in in uh, whatever other movie, Royal Tenenbaums or whatever. Hey, who, who was in Jurassic Park? Jeff Goldblum. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. He was shirtless in that one too. I forgot. You know, I, it's funny. I say I forget about the shirtless Jeff Goldblum and I have a shirtless Jeff Goldblum Funko somewhere in this room. <laughs> I saw like a figure or like a Hasbro like figure of shirtless Jekyll Bloom and I was pretty close to buying it. William Defoe is like he's not at full William Defoe, but he's like on that spectrum, like lower William Defoe. This was a um, great comedic performance by him. When I think yeah. about it, I think he's he he's probably one of my favorite actors. I he wouldn't come off the as an option off the top of my head, but every time I see him I, I enjoy him. Like he's to kill Spider Man. Yeah, Spider-Man. <laughs> I, I immediately go to Lighthouse now. He's okay. just so great in that, which I think that could be a potential title for this podcast. I think there's enough sadness in that movie for us to watch that and not see, have it be out of place. So I have to add that to our list. But yeah. he's I think he's great in this, the, playing Klaus, the kind of the right-hand man to Bill Murray. He's just got good comedic timing in it. Well, don't get me wrong. I don't think anyone's performance in this movie is bad. I just feel like they're doing like their normal versions of them or what they've been playing in a lot of these movies for quite some time. Like not every I, I, movie, because obviously Bill Murray was a different sort of comedic actor, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago. I don't know. I still don't agree with that. Cause I, I, I don't know if this role of Angelica Houston necessarily is like indicative of every Angelica Houston role. And I can't, I'm not super familiar with her work, which is surprising yeah. because my sister used to be obsessed with her when we were younger, but it just, it's hard to take. Cause I feel like most Wes Anderson roles were sort of stunted. Like, yeah. So there's just like the way that the lines are delivered and the, the way that they could like the way the actions for everything is sort of like matter of fact, very sedate. Did you like, say stunted or like artificial. Hmm. I think I mean, both are accurate. Okay. I mean, I do see stunted in the sense that like a lot of these characters are stunted um, sort of emotionally, but I think the, do think there's, there's the artificiality and especially with Angelica Houston's performance where she says a lot of things like very deadpan. But I, I will say like, I was kind of thinking about it in terms of the Royal Tenenbaums where she plays a very similar sort of mother figure stabilizing force in the movie, but she has a lot more sort of screen time and development versus this one where it's similar, but she's like a lot less sort of present to the film. Yes, I think that's where we're getting caught up, where I think you're seeing it as that's the actor kind of doing the same thing that they've done before. And where I'm seeing it as everyone's playing the way that Wes Anderson wants them to play. And I, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing but it's coming at it from different perspectives because i feel mm -hmm. like every wes anderson performance and i think this is another reason why i've gotten tired of wes anderson films is that every character says there's like i love you or it's like i'm sad or it's just like there's no 
emotion. Everything's sort of flat and deadpan. And it's mm-hmm. just gotten to the point where it's like, okay, uh, is every Wes Anderson character on the spectrum somehow? Like it's just, it's, it gets to be weird after a while and not, you know, that's not saying that people on the spectrum are weird. It's, but it's just like when every character in every movie delivers different lines the same way, that's what kind of gets to me where it's just like, there's no emotional nuance between these different movies and these different characters. Everything yeah. sort of sounds the same and it just gets boring after a while. Well, you know, and this is one of my favorite lines from any, any like movie, let alone a Wes Anderson movie. But what my book presupposes is maybe he didn't, you could mm-hmm. drop that into any like Wes Anderson movie like that. I agree that uh, Owen Wilson's performance is different in that one versus in World Ten Bombs versus Life Aquatic, but you could drop that line in, into any Wes Anderson movie and like have it work. So yeah, I I think I agree. Like I do, th- I I'm not blaming the actors per se. What I'm saying is like whatever combination of like Wes Anderson and the actors, like it does feel like very indicative of of their past performances or you know maybe even their future performances in Wes Anderson films. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do have a note saying like you know, answering our eternal question of who the sad man in this movie, we know it's Steve Zissou to a large degree, and then also Owen Wilson's character to some degree, Ned Plimpton. Mm-hmm. But I have a note saying that here's a handy guide. Maybe we, we write the book on like, if your wife committed to, or if your wife died, like you're, you're probably the sad man in a movie. But if Bill Murray is in your movie and it came out in the last 30 years, he's your sad man. Yeah, I, I think it's arguable, if not obvious that every character in the movie is sad <laughs> and obviously the two you mentioned are the Kate Blanchett character sad I mean, well maybe Angelica Houston's not too sad it's hard to tell but she's got I mean, that I guess, Swedish or Italian boy toy yeah well maybe everybody on the crew is sad maybe that's it because I was because Jeff Goldblum's not really sad until the end when he gets kidnapped and shot spoiler alert but he survives. You're all right. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I think one of the charms of the movie is that it's like this ragtag team of losers that has to steal equipment from rival, better funded explorers in order to make their own film. So it's, uh, you know, no one in this movie is particularly happy about their state in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to digest that. I don't think anyone is like super happy in this movie. That's, that's true. But I do think there's, at least for Azizu, like this realization in the movie, I think after his like commando berserker episode, uh, when the pirates come on board. And for me, like that really created like something I hadn't noticed is like, this is really like a film of sort of contrast. I mean, I guess everything is it's, like, it's very like not a nuanced thing to say, but like having like the documentary versus like the reality. And like, I hadn't mm-hmm. noticed, well, I noticed it like Zisu is not a good documentarian as far as like filmmaking is concerned, but I hadn't noticed like they're on fake sets some of the time. And like, there's a lot of like fakeness about the documentary as he's filming it. And then also like, as you're seeing sort of completed documentaries, I think there's a, a couple of times in the movie where both with like when Esteban got eaten and uh, where they like save the snow mongoose or whatever um that mm-hmm. you see the documentaries and they seem like very fake and to me that was just like oh like this is a relic of the 60s where those documentaries were very fake but i think there's like an element of zisu himself like he's making these things and they're all kind of like bullshit versus like you know, they- i think towards the end of the movie 
he falls down some stairs, I think, during that commando mission onto the island. And he's like, fuck it. Like, give him the reality. Like, just keep that in. You know, it's just like we said in the Exorcist episode. Stairs are the scariest thing around. Yeah, that's true. When you become an older sad man, uh, stairs are stairs become your nemesis. Um, but like well, real fathers versus fake fathers, children versus parents. That song, the 30th century man that plays, like even that has a lyric see the dwarves and see the giants, which ones would, would you choose to be? Like, there's a lot of like contrasting like elements to it. And it's really, I think it does kind of go to show like maybe that there's this like Steve before and a Steve after, and not that any one mm -hmm. of them are like less depressed, but at least he's willing to say like, this was my son. He's able to take responsibility, I guess, as opposed to like any sort of necessarily happiness. Well, I, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent since you brought up the documentary aspect of the mm -hmm. film. I have a, that leads into a question that I had for you. And it, I guess it hinges a lot on your knowledge of documentarians. But I wanted to ask if there was another fictional depiction of a documentarian in a film, which documentarian would you want depicted? A fictional depiction of their life, because I know who gosh. I would pick. I mean, the first person that comes to mind is David Attenborough, because I feel like you could do a very funny uh, sort of fictional movie about him, contrasting his very serious old British man ways versus like, he's like a complete hedonist off the microphone or something like that. <laughs> I, I feel like th that movie is being, you know, is waiting to be written. So I feel like uh, also like, I don't know that many documentarians. And if I do, it's probably because I watched like documentary now where they like, very I was just going to say documentary. Now. That's where most of my knowledge comes from too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like documentaries, but I don't pay much attention to the filmmakers. Like I really get into the, the topic at hand. But yeah, like most of my information comes from documentary now. So I'm an uneducated boob uh, when it comes to documentaries, but I do uh, want to hear I, your answer. I, I, I'm on the same page. I'm not very well versed in documentaries. I'm not a huge fan of them myself. But my dream scenario for a fictional depiction of a documentarian in film would be a fictionalized version of Werner Herzog because the, the mm -hmm. way he views life and his absolute nihilism, I guess, I just think would be so funny to see in a movie. I don't think you need a fictionalized version of Virgil Herzog. I think you just need to put him into like, actually, I can't remember if you told me this or if I heard it on a podcast or someone made it up. But like, I seem to remember like this podcaster mentioning that they had, they saw Werner Herzog at like Home Depot or something and I don't even need to say anything else I feel like the scene like writes itself like if you see him you know tr picking up two hammers and trying to decide which hammer to buy or something like um you just Wh need to put which him in hammer situation. has the most destructive force upon the world this one will shatter my heart but this one will shatter humanity I really have to watch that uh documentary he did of the the cave paintings because I, I just, I don't feel like there needs, like, you just put him into these situations and he, he's like Kramer. He'll do his thing if you let, like, let him go. Oh, yeah. If I had a ton of money, I would produce a film starring Paul F. Tompkins as Werner Herzog just going on <laughs> shenanigans. And it would be the, you know, this may be my next project. Maybe this is what's going to get me out of my funk. It's going to be the Werner Herzog screenplay where he... You goes. You heard it here. Like some, first Hollywood. Some simple premise. Some simple premise where he's like going to go get a cup of coffee, and then the world falls apart around him, and he just narrates it all. Although, 
now I think about it, this is this is kind of similar to Bo is Afraid in a way, but hopefully it'd be better than that. I uh, you heard it here first, Hollywood. Give us your money. Also, copyright, trademark, copyright. Yeah. Send ourselves a letter with this idea. <laughs> um, um, I mean, yeah. just to go off about that for a second. I studied a lot of intellectual property law in law school. And when I have done like writing contests or seen writing advice on forums, y'all are idiots. Don't take my joke from me. I know, I know, I know, I know. There, there's an inherent copyright in everything. Just email it to yourself. You don't need to mail yourself a self-addressed, time-stamped envelope. First off, no one's going to steal your idea. Second off, most ideas are shit. That is absolutely true. And second off, every creative work has an inherent copyright in it. Just email it to yourself. There's a timestamp there in some weird, far fetched world where a, a director or a writer or producer has, has to have access to your work that they actually find it and then rip it off. You have an email timestamp to yourself saying, Oh, look at this metadata. I wrote this on this date and it came out then and they went to my website and read it. Yeah. Then you can sue them. Otherwise it's not going to happen. People just get over yourself. Calm the fuck down. I don't know if you saw my face as the joke was coming out of my mouth, but I was chewing on it. Like, should I say something here or am I going to let it go? It, it's it just go? a, it's a weird nexus point of my legal career and writing career. And for some reason, it's just something I, it's one of my biggest pet peeves in life. So I'm sorry for the, the most energy I've displayed ever on this podcast going off on that little rant. Well, speaking of energy on the podcast, those fucking Zisu, Zisu Adidas, I want them. I want them so desperately. Oh, see, I so badly wanted a Zizu blue sweater. One of my exes said she would sew a Z onto a blue sweater for me. It never happened. I'm not surprised the relationship did not last because that was a big failed promise. Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I can get a nice, like, I actually have like a, a, after Knives Out, I bought like a nice, like fisherman's like sweater, but it's like cream. So I don't think it'd be hard to find a blue one. Mm. Um, and then you just have to like sew the Z on there, which is not a, you know, huge deal. But those sneakers, holy shit. I would kill a man in front of his own mother to get those sneakers. They and must I've have looked, made those, right? I think there was something like I definitely saw some company like maybe like three years ago had a very limited run of like maybe the same sort of colorway but i love that colorway i would buy those sneakers in a heartbeat i just well you can you can buy them for 650 pounds on a website (laughs) that's like 25 dollars, right i can't remember what the conversion rate is oh here's another one that has them for why is everything coming up in pounds google get your shit straight that might have been the the problem with it if i remember correctly that it was only like in england or europe or something and i was like i can't spend like whatever 300 dollars on shoes which you know jokes on me i was gonna ask what's the most you think you've ever spent on shoes uh probably 200 i mean is it it was probably what fashionable sneakers i'm guessing yeah yeah like uh i did i bought like i really wanted a pair of air jordans that were like a little like not as loud as like the you know black and red and white pair that Miles Morales wears. So I got like mm-hmm. a gray and white pair. But I was going to tell you, like I got the uh, the Homer Simpson fading into the bush Adidas sneaker. So I did 
I have not seen those. <laughs> there's one where like there's fuzzy like green, I guess green fuzz on the heel, and it's got that picture of Homer like fading into the into oh the my fuzz. God, I I need to see look a photo of those. <laughs> my other question for you is that scene where Ned Plimpton dies from the helicopter crash. Do you think they killed Owen Wilson in real life for that? <laughs> I I guess not i don't know although i now do you mention it i think there is some story where either he tried to commit suicide or he had cardiac arrest or something like oh, that. oh no god. i don't want to joke about him committing no suicide. i no i oh god now i have to look that up because i have some weird thought about that uh um owen wilson let me speak to you as as tom looks this up you are a national treasure you are a wonderful mobius you brighten my day oh uh, he was a, glad you're here there was a, a celebrity death hoax of him oh. in 2010. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Well, that I can make fun of because that wasn't like him doing anything. That was like a rumor that went around. Yeah. Oh, no, he did apparently try to commit suicide in 2014, though. So, uh, Why must you toy with my emotions this way? It's both things. He There was a death hoax in 2010 and 2014, a news report that he apparently did try to kill himself. So I was not wrong to have these memories. So, Oof. I mean, he's still around. That's all that matters. He's, yeah. he's thriving. No, unless he gets canceled for some bad reason, I go back to my previous uh, monologue where I thanked him for his service in Hollywood. He seems like a, a delightful man. So hopefully he is, but we'll never know. Yeah. I mean, Owen Wilson, if you're listening, we'll take Come you out to dinner, show. my friend. Come on the show. Have a couple laughs. You could you could choose whatever movie you want. Oh, and speaking of, we've gotten two listener requests. Real listeners are our friends. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> okay, fair enough. One request for Solaris, the original one by Tarkovsky, which I think was already on our list. And then another request for I definitely, definitely yeah a little a little uh advice to the listener if it's foreign and pretentious I probably chose it that's just no that's not rolled. true because every pretentious Japanese movie on that list is mine every pretentious European film it's probably mine um yeah so <laughs> one request for Tarkovsky Solaris which I think would be a good choice. And then another one, which I don't think we considered, but is a pretty good suggestion, uh, RoboCop. Yes, fucking, fucking A, yes. Yeah, which I um, didn't think about off the top of my head, but I think that definitely qualifies. I think it definitely qualifies too. And first, it lets me bring in the Bo uh, Bob's Burgers parody of RoboCop, which <laughs> Chef Smith. I used to have a, a keychain of that Bob, of RoboBob. <laughs> I uh I do have a sticker of Gene dressed as Bob uh on my wrist rest on my laptop. And then the second thing is there there's gonna be like a Robocop game and it evidently like it sounds like it's gonna be pretty good, like a you know, like a mid-level sort of really good game, like double A sort of game. And that got me thinking about Robocop and I was like I got hyped up and I was like, Yeah, man, I should watch Robocop. That'd be great. All right. Well, I think I added it to the list, but I'll double check. Okay, but, yeah, we can. We all right, can... all right. To, to get back to Life Aquatic, I want to make sure we get to this question. <laughs> I sent you yeah. this yesterday because I wanted to make yeah. sure you had adequate time to think this over. I didn't want you to be put on the spot and not have an answer. So yes. I'm going to re reread the, the question for the audience. Yes. And I want them to consider it too because I think this is a good question for Pause everybody. Pause your podcast right here to come back when you have an answer. 
Well, they have to hear the they have to hear the question first. Oh yeah, not here. Right after the question. What musician's catalog would you want to be covered as a soundtrack for your life, and in which language would you like it to be sung in? Pause here. Turn tape over. <laughs> so I thought about this, and I thought about sort of the three languages that I speak: Bengali, Japanese, and and English. And I know it's not Bengali, and I can tell you why. Went to my brother's wedding reception in Atlanta over the weekend, and he was like. Why the fuck are we having a wedding reception? I already got married <laughs> like two months ago. And so he didn't take any responsibility for this. And so they picked all like 70s Bengali music for this. And I was like 15 minutes into it. I was like, I'm over this. I could do a better job DJing. What I would do is play Midnight's on loop over and over. And then in between play Tom Jones's What's New Pussycat. Like, four times in a row have i ever um, told you my tom jones story no i don't think so you're not this american life are you no not yet <laughs> that's the, i remember the story where the guy played it in the diner like 50 times yeah, that's a john mulaney story which coincidentally uh, i did the same thing but with mariah carey's all i want for christmas is you i did that in a bar in denver in the middle of the summer to the point where the bartender started yelling at everybody and unplugged the jukebox and i did that <laughs> not ever having heard that john mulaney bit before yeah um, fuck you john mulaney i like him I, he's troubled I have no, I meant it because he like stole your bit. Oh no, I, he did it well before I did. It was just uh, uh, like up. two two geniuses having the same independent <laughs> thought on annoying an entire bar full of people. Anyways, when I was studying abroad in the UK, part of it was a week in Edinburgh. One night, I walked up to the top of this little mountain in, in, on the outskirts of Edinburgh called. Uh, king's throne i believe it's right next to edinburgh castle that night tom jones was performing inside the castle so i hiked up to this top of this mountain at dusk sit up there alone watch the sunset and i go to take a selfie of myself because this was like 2004 so it's like right at the, uh, the onset of like digital cameras and trying to like take your own photo Right as I'm about to take a photo, what do I hear but this? What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. And I start laughing right as I'm taking the selfie. Cut to when I get home, I'm showing photos to my mom. She sees that particular photo. She sees me smiling, which I'm not a, I think I've covered this in the podcast before. I'm not a man who smiles a lot. I look pissed like I have hemorrhoids. I've looked like I've just had hemorrhoids my entire life. Now that I'm older, I have them sometimes. But regardless, I always look angry. I always look dour. I'm very rarely smiling. So my mom sees this random rare photo of me looking happy, smiling, showing my bright white teeth. And she says, why are you so happy in this photo? And I said, right as I'm taking it, Tom Jones starts singing, what's new pussycat? And so that is my Tom Jones story. You stayed for the concert? No, I, I stayed for a little bit because I could hear it perfectly from this mm -hmm. mountain. So, but I, I think I heard the hits and he started singing songs I didn't know. And it started to get dark. And I was like, eh. He's like, now for my originals. Or well, now for my new stuff. Yeah, that's, but it was like, eh, I don't want to hike down this mountain in the dark just so I can listen to the Tom Jones music. Like, I heard, I think, maybe three or four songs. I was like, I'm good. 
and went back to my dorm. I have a very similar story. Not we didn't take a photo, but we were in Hiroshima just randomly, and we were walking by the city athletic center or something. And a Herbie, like there was a Herbie Hancock concert like that night. Ooh. And so like I walked over there and was like, showed up my student ID, even though I had graduated like ten years ago. Maybe not ten years ago. Maybe like five or seven years later. Um, showed up my grad school ID and was like, I'm a student. Let me in. <laughs> to watch like Herbie Hancock, and then he's gonna start like a um, a an encore, and then we were I, we couldn't make it back to like our hotel because like, we had visited from Nagoya, so like had to like mm. take the train back. But got to see Herbie Hancock live, which was pretty cool. That's much more impressive. I'd rather no, no, it's not. <laughs> Tom Jones, my friend. Um, I couldn't get, I couldn't even see a sex appeal. I could only hear it. <laughs> you felt it in nature, mm-hmm. but. My first like answer to your question is this soundtrack, no notes. This is like one of the perfect movie soundtracks. Whether you take the, is it George Seuss? I can't pronounce his name. Uh, you're Portuguese. It's Sue Jorge. You're not a uh, Sue Jorge. Okay, got it. My um, my I am so far removed from my Portuguese ness. It's uh, <laughs> several several generations removed. But whether it's his like songs by themselves or the the other sort of songs they picked and Mark Mother's Boss like incident or not incidental music but instrument, instrumental music like I could just listen to this this is fantastic I could watch you know stop motion marine life and and Mark Mother's Boss for hours like that is that's great um and they did say in the commentary that David Bowie is like woven through the movie and so I actually had that as a note for why it might appeal to me and I know there's some sketchy things in Bowie's life uh early on but yeah well and then that time he's like said some real weird right wing things when he was playing that one character. Yeah, Bowie's weird, but I I I think this movie was my gateway into David Bowie. Like I always kind of knew who he was, but never really listened yeah. to him. But I think this movie may have been my first kind of in depth introduction to him. Yeah, me too. I think this is my like gateway. You know, to the point where you know, obviously my my dog is named Bowie after mm-hmm. David Bowie. Um, I have a note saying that I'm an awful 2000 hipster doofus, but search and destroy all the Mark Mothersbaugh music, the 30th, 30th century man, Sigur Ross, like all of this stuff is, is stuff I kind of, you know, college grew up on. And I would listen to that. There's a lot of like Japanese movie soundtracks, which I think could also end up being like a soundtrack to someone's life thinking especially of the Michelle Gunn Elephant, which is this metal band, which I don't really listen to metal, but they did a movie called Blue Spring, which is actually also on our list. I kind of took your question as like, what music would I choose as opposed to like which singer? But mm-hmm. I had Tom Petty's Highway Companion, which is like right for several years now has been my favorite like Tom Petty album. Oh, I didn't uh, know you were a like Tom a, Petty man. It was the first album I bought that my parents hated. Like, and that was like... Mm. I don't know, maybe early high school, maybe, maybe even like late middle school. I have to admit, I might like, I might like you a little less now after learning that. Oh no. (laughs) Is he a Florida dirtbag? No, he's actually a respectable Floridian as far as I know. I'm just not a big Tom Petty fan. I don't, I I don't, I don't dislike him, but I just, he just doesn't do it for me. I, I like a lot of like that college rock nerd voice, uh, man, like nerd nasal voice. And I think he's like the king of that. But the next one is definitely also that, uh, The Decemberist, The King is Dead, like, mm. um, which I think is the last Decemberist album I really, like, genuinely loved. And 
I do feel like both those albums have like this very life is a journey or uh, whatever other cliche you want to have road trip sort of thing going for them. And then Taylor Swift, that girl <laughs> feels things. She feels them so much. So um, hot right now. <laughs> as a, Yes. I don't like, I'm trying to like, not like. Oh, I don't mean, Indiana. I don't mean attractiveness. I just mean like popularity. No, I know. But like all of, well, all like, is she dating that football dude? Like, is she at those games? His name is like, Travis Kelsey. Games. I, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you say Travis Kelsey, and I have the same reaction that I have when anyone mentions Dak Shepard, which is, fuck that guy. Kristen Bell could do so much better. Um, you know, I, got, I, I will stand up for Travis Kelsey. As far as football players go, he actually seems... Okay. In, I was going to say enlightened, but that may be too generous. He doesn't seem he doesn't come across as a doucher. Like he's doing COVID booster shot commercials and like Oh good. Oh, doing, that's nice. Yeah, it's like he's doing stuff that I support. So Yeah. Of course I like him. But I mean, as far as football players go, he doesn't It's a low seem, bar. He doesn't seem problematic. Yeah. Uh between domestic violence, being anti vax, I guess dog fighting human growth hormones like it's not a high bar to be like man it's tough being a football fan sometimes i i i mean one of those weirdos that tries to like not draft problematic guys for my fancy football team just because i don't want to root for them (laughs) but but even then sometimes fantasy football you know sometimes you still end up with someone who's like you're a despicable human being but you're going to get me 20 points a week on average. So I want to win my $10 back in this league. So, <laughs> you know, I got to hate myself and compromise my morals for fantasy football points every so often. You know, like I, I, I watch some sports. I watch basketball. I'll watch soccer. Like I'm not like a huge fan, but I'll, I'll especially international soccer. I'll watch if it's on, but like nothing. I don't think anything makes me feel as much of a nerd like that calls everything sports ball as much as football does it's weird like people are always very surprised when they find out i'm a sports fan i just don't present that but at the same time at home like right now i'm wearing a miami heat sweatshirt it's been a phenomenon for me since the pandemic where i just have a bunch of sports clothing now like i have a bunch of heat in florida panther hoodies I'm always wearing a, a sport South Florida sport franchise hat when I'm walking the dog. Like I, it's like when my partner's parents found out that I knew sports, they were like, really? And I was like, oh yeah, I you? used to play. I played so many sports growing up. I played everything and people just don't expect that from me, which I totally understand. I am a scrawny dude. I don't look athletic. But like I was competent at every sport. I wasn't really good at any of them, but I could, you know, I was also not the last one picked either. So it's I have a weird relationship with it. Like I I recognize that most sports are probably maybe not net negative, but like they all have very problematic elements. And I mean, I'm isn't very, that all sports really? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That they all have yeah. that. So, but at the same time it does give me a modicum of joy to watch the Miami heat or the Florida Panthers or the Miami dolphins. I don't watch the Miami Marlins anymore because they just have poisoned the well too many times, but like I still (laughs) derive some enjoyment from it. 
And I had to explain well, to my partner that I still watch Miami Dolphins every Sunday because that's what I used to watch with my grandmother every Sunday. So I get just this weird connection that I have to my grandmother who used to talk about Dan Marino back in the 90s. So it's like it's this weird kind of ingrained routine for me. Yeah. And I don't want to give yeah. that up. Yeah, for me, like it's very similar. Like um, I'd watch like NBA basketball with my parents, especially sort of in that Michael Jordan era. Um, and then like in grad, like in college and grad school, like I'd watch it on my own and you know, kind of be studying as games are on. And so there's like a, a nostalgic factor there, but there's also like a sense of like, these people are like two to three times my height. <laughs> um, they're doing things that I could never hope to do. Uh, and it's sort of amazing to watch. And I've got a very similar thing. I think it was pre pandemic, but like after I moved to San Francisco, like a lot of my uh, hats are, are, are golden state hats and, and things like that. So um, I definitely jumped on that bandwagon while it was still going strong. Got to get. Um, you were briefly on the art, Jimmy. Yeah. You were briefly on the Jimmy Butler bandwagon, and that was the right well, call last year. <laughs> no, well, like if I if I'm gonna pick between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat, like I'll be on that ba- I'll be on that Miami Heat bandwagon. Plus, you know, they were the underdogs, and Butler was just like crazy like the way he fought back like to get to the nuggets was amazing so like i was like if i'm going to support anybody it's it's the heat for this oh let's make this a jimmy butler devotion podcast (laughs) also like between like that hat clip you showed me and his like emo jimmy butler uh when uh damian lillard didn't i we've just alienated all of our audience but when uh you know this preseason when he did the emo haircut like He's a man I can I can understand. We should I you know I'm finally turned the corner. We should have social media because we could have exploited that photo for our own gain. <laughs> I could send you a blue sky uh, invite if that's your that's your game. You know what? I'll talk to you off mic. You I may yeah. ask you. I'll edit the episodes if you do social media. I'm not as funny as you. That's the only problem. Like, yeah, I'm not funny on social media. <laughs> I'll say one other person. I don't know if you know Open Mike Eagle, um, but I know the name. But I've never listened uh, to him. He's got like the stuff that I love of his, and that would be like maybe like sixty to seventy percent of his songs. Like I really like, and then the other like forty to thirty to forty percent, I, I I don't care for as much. But raps a lot about anxiety. Um, the stuff he does is pretty catchy. He's got a a song called Ziggy Starfish anti anxiety raps. So like. If someone was actually like rapping about my life, this it would be this guy. So those are my, I had a lot of uh, answers to your question, but those were. Well, my... I'm, gl- I'm glad I asked you ahead of time because I, I came up with the question I think about a week ago, so well before mm-hmm. I watched the episode, and I was trying to come up with the answer for myself, and I was having a very difficult time. So I was like, oh, I need to give you a heads up because otherwise <laughs> it's just going to be us not knowing what to say. And I really only came up with two, maybe one and a half answers for me. The first thing that came Mm -hmm. to mind was Leonard Cohen sung in French, just because he had a lot of sad songs, a lot of songs about fucking, which I would like to think I could relate to, but probably not to the same extent that he did in his life. (laughs) Uh But he also made albums up into his eighties. Like he was making music pretty much until he died. So I feel like Mm -hmm. that, he had such a, what, I think about five or six decade long career. So I feel like over that span, he probably had enough songs that you could have a song for every situation. And I like hearing French. 
even though like but it has to be like the very smooth elegant french not like the guttural i got phlegm in my throat <laughs> like that that like mm-hmm. it has to be like ooh la la so that was my first thought and then as a backup option i think there's enough variety in of montreal's catalog that i think they mm. could adequately score uh, uh my life but i don't know what foreign language i would want that in well i was gonna say like i picked the languages i spoke but there's something very appealing about those portuguese covers of david bowie songs and i really there's a beauty there and it's really attractive and it's almost like more beautiful if you don't understand it compared to when you do yeah it really creates this weird ethereal quality to it yeah and sigur ross is the same way like that again that song is is just gorgeous uh it's absolutely beautiful and really kind of makes that scene but um speaking of of montreal we went to that show together in athens and then uh i think maybe before no yeah before that i had a al uh hills arbitrium you know i can't pronounce anything i i don't know how to pronounce most their albums but i know which one you're talking about that was my like social media like profile image for such such a long time yeah, like I, I, I could see like even just like, oh, I took this album cover and like had it representative of myself for like my very emo like college undergrad days. Uh, I could totally see of Montreal doing a really good sort of life soundtrack. Oh, and going full circle in a way. There is a documentary about them. It's not very good, but it's not terrible. <laughs> Are they sad in it? Could we watch it for the, the podcast? Oh, yeah. Kevin Barr's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm i love my wife but i cheat on her <laughs> every chance i get oh that actually reminds me a, a friend of a friend apparently made out with kevin barnes in a bush and then like halfway through he was just like i can't do this and just like stood up and walked away and just left her like in some random bush in tallahassee or something like that it was i don't know i don't it's remember a very tallahassee kind of story you know, Panhandle is its own unique place. <laughs> I, I'm i thinking about it and like contrasting that like of Montreal documentary to like a hypothetical Weezer documentary where <laughs> uh, Rivers Quo was just like, fuck it, I sold out and I am couldn't be happier. I have a theory about Weezer. Okay. Okay, I well, let's just go for it. So yeah. I used to love Weezer. Blue Album for a long time was my favorite album. And then Pinkerton yeah. was great. And then it's been sort of a, you know, gradual decline ever since. Yes. Uh, coincidentally, the same friend who had a friend make out in a bush, he had a great theory that I always loved where he liked to think that the band Weezer died in a bus crash after Pinkerton. And every album since has been a replacement cover band. And I think there could be some truth to that. But my theory is that rivers como put so much of himself into the pinkerton album made it so personal and divulged so much of his inner emotional self on it and to have it get critically panned and take years to be appreciated as a classic as a masterpiece i think after that he was just like i'm never going to do this again i'm never going to put myself this much into my music i'm only going to write stupid stuff about beverly hills and pork and beans and covers of really popular 80s song like i think he just decided i'm just going to stay superficial and to his credit 
it probably probably worked i mean yeah like if you don't have to put yourself into the music like go for it why 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 not he's still making money he doesn't have to like you know peel back the layers of his soul to like write a song he can just talk about guys from lost you know yeah and he was able to satisfy his asian fetish so more power <laughs> to him uh this is where i say nothing um <laughs> my wife is korean american um so uh, the last thing i really had on my list i didn't have like that many notes for this uh movie but there seemed to be like a lot of connections to the beatles uh speaking of musicians who died and that got covered up paul is dead but like obviously the yellow submarine they use like the 60s sort of oh my aesthetic. god that totally went over my head i don't this is like the only time i caught it like the father son issues obviously was a big deal for john lennon and and especially is it julian lennon yeah and then you know kind of uh paul sort of stepping in as a as a uh substitute father figure for him um, so I, 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 there's something there. I haven't completely like figured it out yet, but I, I feel like there's, there's something knocking around in there. That's maybe like somebody's, you know, music history honors thesis, undergrad thesis. I ate a very shitty pepperoni pizza at a yellow submarine <laughs> uh-huh. themed bar in Southern Chile. Okay. Punta Arenas. I don't know. It was just this right. Ra- I, found a random restaurant that was decorated in psychedelic Beatles decoration. I was like, mm-hmm. this will be fun. I was the only person in there. I'm just some random ass gringo in, in Chile eating at a Beatles themed bar that no one's at. So that's my memory of the yellow submarine. So I could be, I'm not saying this is like fact, but I feel like in my experience, any Beatles or yellow submarine themed restaurant is awful. Yeah, I think that's probably a safe, like, rule of the universe. There might be, or might have been, I don't know if it still exists, but a, a Yellow Submarine-themed sandwich shop in the Sunset in San Francisco that is good. But I can't remember, and I don't remember if it still exists, but I feel like every other time, especially, like, pizza places that are like, yeah, man, we are based on Yellow Submarine, it's ter- terrible. Yeah, no good. smoking oregano in the back kitchen. <laughs> I need to correct myself. From what I said earlier, when I said that this was the angstiest line in the movie about being okay. sad for a decade, I think I have to correct it with the dialogue. How are you feeling? I'm right on the edge and I don't know what comes next. But I feel like that's kind of the constant feeling of dread that I've had for most of my life. So maybe I just relate to that too much. I relate uh, to that one too. I think it's somewhere in my notes, but it's definitely that has basically been the question I've asked myself every moment since i attained adulthood like whatever adulthood biological right. adulthood uh let's let's run through the the few questions i have left oh yeah absolutely in this movie steve zizu wanted revenge on the shark that ate his best friend and he maybe wanted to blow it up with dynamite mm-hmm. has there ever been an animal that you've had such animosity towards that you wanted to blow it up with dynamite i do want to have the quote here Son of a bitch, I'm sick of these dolphins. Um, <laughs> I wanted to take a screen grab. If I was active on Reddit, I wanted to take a screen grab of that and put it on the Miami Dolphins subreddit, but that's too <laughs> that, much effort. That's a meme. That's that's a good meme. Um, um, not really. Like, I don't If you stretch the definition of animal a little bit, like, <laughs> for some reason, there are gnats in my house. Um, 
and there have been gnats like outside too like it's been like weird weather in in where i live in california and it's been like very warm and so there have been a lot of gnats and they've some of them have decided to come into the house and it's like the worst because they'll like buzz by they'll like saw one like caught in one of the dog's fur like i was like you fucking moron that <laughs> is your own fault so yeah like i don't think dynamite would work or maybe like i'm not sure what the physics is for like blowing a gnat up with dynamite but i would blow that animal up with dynamite it'd probably be overkill but still be fun oh and my mom got dengue fever in bangladesh one time so oh! <laughs> i forgot about that uh so mosquitoes may be on that list yeah, I think everybody could agree with blowing up mosquitoes. Every like right. every like three or four years, I look up mosquitoes and see like have scientists figured out how to eradicate them yet? And I don't think we're there quite yet. But there, I think they've learned on. how to sterilize them or something, but I can't remember. It, it, it's a topic of discussion among South Floridians every so often. <laughs> sure, uh, the lawless swamp. You you got to find out. I was trying to think. I wish I could say I had like a rivalry with a bird that I wanted to blow up, <laughs> but I I don't. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I should blow up those the random off-leash dogs that have attacked my dog in the past. But at the same time, I think the owners probably deserve to be blown up more so than the dog. So Yeah, it's probably uh, not the dog's fault as much. Yeah, so I don't really have a good answer for that. Next question. What would yeah. you name your research vessel? Oh, my God. The Belfonte is so good. Uh, it's hard to, like, reach the, the heights of, like, that name. Oof. Do you have an I, I, I think I need some time to think about this. I'm doing the routine where I'm looking around the room trying <laughs> to come up with an answer. The Logan? I'll call it the Kitchen Cabaret. Kitchen hey, Cabaret. It's it's I... a def long defunct Epcot performance where food would sing to you in very punny songs. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think you you were talking about this at the. Uh, I'm at sure Disneyland. I did. <laughs> That's a good one. I would take it. The, obviously, the first thing that came to mind to me are uh, beautiful women, and I will skip over that. I'll call it the Cape Blanchett. I, I call it the Brie Larson. No, um, and then I was thinking of like singers, uh, like the Billie Holiday or whatever, and I think that could be pretty good. And then. You know, I feel like mythology is always a good well to pull from. And then I was like, everyone do, does like Greek and Roman mythology. So maybe, you know, maybe the Amaterasu or maybe the, I actually don't know enough Bengali folklore to like uh, name it after something like that. But, you know, something, something Asian folklore so that it's uh, a little bit different from, uh, you know, everyone's boat is named the Neptune or whatever. Okay. Two more questions. Yeah, this was the final question kind of in the movie. And I'll try and say it like Owen Wilson's character. Do you wish you could breathe underwater? I mean, part of my answer is is Sisu's always, which was a very nice little touch where you get the answer first and then you get the question. Um, so nice little bit of movie making there, writing there. I do, but I feel like the other thing I read over over the weekend was Between Two Fires, which is uh, this sort of like fantasy novel set during the plague. And I'm not going to go, one? this is not a movie about that book. Um, yeah, it gets even funner because 
Lucifer and the devils, the demons in hells, you know, look at this as like God has abandoned human humanity. And so they are like, right now, chap, it's time to go upstairs and mess with humanity. Um, and not in a good way, but like Eldritch abom abomination sort of way. Um, and so I feel like if I wished for the ability to breathe underwater, there'd be some like horrible consequence of, you know, I'd become like a fish man from <laughs> uh, from HP Lovecraft and couldn't breathe on land anymore. And you really, all the cool stuff is on land, you know, like whales are cool and dolphins are cool and coral reefs are cool, but they don't make a lot of TV under the sea, unfortunately. Unless the the documentary The Little Mermaid I saw is true, I think it wouldn't be like, you know, you maybe spend a year under the ocean and then you're like, yeah, this is fine, I guess. But I really want to catch up on, you know, reservation dogs or whatever. Yeah, I I, I feel like uh, I I love showers, but uh, <laughs> yeah, showers the best. I, I just don't I don't know. I've never really had a strong desire to be able to breathe underwater personally. I and feel like it's going to be a monkey's paw kind of situation. It always is. Fucking monkey Your paws. whole, like, head becomes like a fish, like, you know, from front to back. And, and you know, people you don't find that attractive. You have a shriveled dick for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's a little it's fish. It's shrinkage. I was underwater. <laughs> All right. Jerry, and ladies then... know about shrinkers, don't they? And to finish up the episode, which is how yeah. we finish up every episode... Yeah. What can we learn from this sad man? Man, maybe you don't know about your potential son and ignore him for 20-something years. Hmm. I was trying to um, think up a good answer. I don't... I mean, you want to hear, like, my, my other answer is, number one, don't leave your three-legged dog on the, the Filipino pirate island. Yeah, I'm glad uh, I was debating whether to bring that up or not, because that made me very mad. I mean, the dog had come with... I mean... Were all the pirates dead? Because the dog had come with the pirates, so like they could take care of the dog. But if the pirates are dead, like could the dog live? No, on they its own? they were still alive. The kid was alive. That one kid that helped out the Bond Company stooge guy. Oh yeah, so, I, I feel like it Bill wasn't Murray that. was going to harpoon a kid. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's true. Huh. <laughs> uh, I can't. I, I thought it was so funny when the, the I think it's Bill, the 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 Bond Company guy. I was mm. like, no, he's a friend. And then uh, Bill Murray makes I can't even remember the motion exactly, but he does a motion and then tells the Bill like, we'll send him some like, we'll send him a pin and a letter or whatever. No, they're they're going to send him one of the red caps. I think was at the line. Oh yeah, red caps and a pin yeah. or something, <laughs> or maybe just the red cap, but like. I just found that hilarious, and I, I'm finding it hilarious again. Also, if you're gonna do an internship like on the ocean, you gotta stay till the end. Yeah, you gotta get that credit. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, if you go home with that incomplete, um, you'll never become a marine biologist. Hmm. Let me try. Let me try and think of a serious answer for what we should learn from this sad man. Maybe that if we are concerned about our own legacies and we want to be remembered fondly don't be a dickhead to people yeah i kind of was thinking about the same thing as you were thinking through it like i was thinking you can't have it all you can't be like a major asshole and like sleep around and you know kind of uh 
refuse the call of father not, not in the sense of like you have to be a father like you have to make a child but once you've had that child deciding that you're not going to be involved and then also feel like you're going to have a legacy and people should respect you yeah you you can't be adored if you don't give people a reason to adore you i guess well not completely true because elon musk still exists but in the context of this movie and uh 2004 when we were blissfully ignorant yeah i would say that it's a lesson yeah yeah i think that's good enough to go off go out on oh i have i have one more wes anderson get off your bullshit and like you're a talented filmmaker stretch your stretch your talents a little bit i would love to see a wes anderson horror movie yeah i'm sure someone could like do good horror that's also like that has that twee aesthetic uh if anyone's if you haven't seen the original suspiria that may be worth checking out i haven't seen that it, it kind of meets, meets that criteria we can't put it on the list there's no it's a it's not a sad man anyways all right well i guess we may actually make social media now if anyone's listening if we do we'll announce it somehow and contact the five people who listen to this that i'm aware of if you are someone who i'm not on a texting basis with and you have a a a request for a sad man movie you'd like us to cover please email us at our email which is cheerupbuddypod at gmail.com and if you don't want to remember it there's a hyperlink in the episode info so we're easy enough to reach we'd love to hear from you tell us we're good Oh, and I think I'm stealing this from every other podcast in existence. I guess you're supposed to like and subscribe and rate us and all that shit. I mean, I guess theoretically we would like people to listen. I'm sort of indifferent, but I guess there's no <laughs> I guess there's no harm in people listening to us. Apparently, the people who oh, I'm are sure listening, we've like let so many personal details out in the, even just the last like five or six episodes oh you know i'm i haven't said anything too bad it's stuff i'm not ashamed of disclosing so it is what it is i'm openness helps other people be open and the world's a healthier place when we're open with one another that's true but you guys know what to do you've listened to if this is your first podcast god help you but most of you have listened to other podcasts rate uh subscribe write a review get us to other people i guess tell your friends you meet a sad man on the, meet a sad man on the street say hey buddy cheer up buddy listen to this podcast also named cheer up buddy buddy if people ask you for money hand them a card with the url for this podcast instead <laughs> oh boy we're uh <laughs> we have uh tom tokens and Riddy reals so we can have their own kind of currency that will get them nowhere yeah do you hate uh, other people just hand them a card for this podcast yeah i only hate myself at the moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wouldn't inflict this on anyone uh, i guess besides uh myself and yourself yeah all right well i think we're gonna call it that thanks for listening everybody our next movie will either be uh, are we doing yours or are we, uh, are we doing mine or are we doing yours? We should do yours. I don't know. It's either going to be P- Poco Rosso or eight and a half. So watch them both, I guess, you nerds. <laughs> watch them. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We will cheer you up next time. 
Cheer up, buddies. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.